Hello, everyone. Uh, we are uh, very happy this hall is full on a Friday, on the last day. So thanks for your enthusiasm. Uh, so this session is going to be uh, presented by three speakers uh, who are from three different regions. So I'm Girish Patil. I'm from uh, Mumbai, India. I'm John Dion. I'm from Canada. And I'm Thomas Jackson, and I'm from the United States. So real multi-region today. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. So let's get started quickly. So today's session, uh, we are going to discuss why you need uh, multi-region active-active architecture, uh, what are some of the design principles behind it, what are the foundational pillars in terms of technological requirements, and we'll see how AWS provides those pillars to you. And uh, uh, last uh, part, a very important part, uh, Wish uh, is going to discuss uh, their journey of multi-region active-active architecture. So first things first, why do you need a multi-region active-active architecture? Because, I said by. So AWS regions, uh, as you would know, are extremely robust. But what may happen is, while the entire region may be doing very well, one of the services in that region that might be critical to your business, it might suffer some impact. It could be an AWS service, and it could be equally some system that is deployed and completely managed by you. What you do in such cases, right? So if you have multi-region active-active architecture, it is easily possible for you to switch your users from one region to the other. So basically, what we are doing is we are reducing the blast radius of any problem. If there is a problem, that is not going to impact your entire application. It's going to be impacting a part of your system, a subset of users, which can very well be redirected to the other part. So this is how we reduce the blast radius. Now, why don't we use DR? Because DR environments, they fall out of sync eventually. You can be very sincere and you can keep DR uh, in sync with production. It takes a ridiculous amount of diligence on the part of administrators. But in most cases, Murphy's Law applies and it falls out of sync. It also wastes your money because you have resources in DR that are not being used. AWS, by the way, makes setting up DR extremely cheap, but still there is a non-zero amount of money that you're going to invest on it, and it is not going to be of any use unless and until a disaster strikes. Now, once we design multi-region architecture, we reduce the blast radius, but we also gain one advantage. What is that advantage? Is that we can serve geographically distributed customers from regions that are closer to them. You see this. Now that we have established why multi-region active-active architectures are needed and how they are better than uh, traditional DR, let us see what are some of the design principles that must be followed while designing them. The first principle is your design should be tolerant to network partitions. Any problems in one region should not lead to failure of applications in another region. You should aim for independence for request serving so that your users are not adversely impacted should anything go wrong. So how do you do that? You, minim you minimize the blocking API and database calls from one region to another. And if something goes wrong, you degrade your application gracefully. You don't show some dirty errors to your users. Only a part of your application may be broken while the rest of the part is working fine. This is how you develop tolerance for network partition, and this is very critical. The next thing is you need to minimize the data replication requirement. You need to ask these three questions to yourself. Does all data need to be replicated? If yes, does it need to be replicated synchronously? And if it is not required to be replicated synchronously, if we have the option of replicating asynchronously, does it need to be replicated continuously? Do we have the option of replicating in batch? You need to ask this question to yourself for each and every category of your data. Let me show you what I mean by category of data. 
Let us take an example of an e-commerce company. For such a business, purchase records are there, product details are there, clickstream data is there, that user added a product to the cart and he, uh, he still didn't buy it, those kind of uh, events. And last but not least, you will have tons of HTTPS logs. Which one of these are most valuable? Of course, the purchase records. Because they indicate which products are to be delivered to which user, and they decrement your inventory, right? They are low in volume, but they are most critical. And on the other extreme, HTTP logs are extremely high in volume, but they are very, very less critical. So this is how you can classify your data. The data on left side is the most critical. On the right side, it is high in volume, but less critical. So now you know where to prioritize your replication effort. And once you decide uh, what needs to be replicated continuously, now you have two options, whether to replicate it synchronously or whether to replicate it asynchronously. So we know what is synchronous, asynchronous mean, but just to bring everyone on the same page, let me show you this brief animation. So in synchronous replication, whenever a write is happening to the primary, it is also done to the replica in the remote region, and then only the operation completes. In asynchronous mode, write happens to primary, and it is acknowledged. Basically, the transaction completes. And in the background, asynchronously, it is replicated to the replica in the remote region. What is the benefit of sync? Sync basically guarantees data consistency, but it is network and target dependent. If there is a network partition, or if the target is busy, it is not responding, your entire database system is broken. It stops working. This other side, async. It gives you the benefit of network and target independence. Even if for brief moments, network is not available, the target is not responding, still the primary database will continue to function as it is. But this comes at the cost of two databases going out of sync. Probability can be lowered to a very small value, but it still remains a non-zero probability. So you have to keep that in mind while designing your systems. Now let us quickly take a look at what are the expectations out of an ideal replicator. So ideal replicator should report replication lag. It should report a record offset as to how many records are copied over, how many records are yet to be copied over. And last but not least, they should have a mechanism to retry so that there is network partition, target is not responding. Uh, they should be able to replicate the data you know, uh, by retrying it. So we'll see how AWS provided replication systems meet these requirements. Before we uh, deep dive uh, into technological components, let us uh, still uh, uh, let us review the high-level design pattern uh, for applications and databases together. So here we have taken two regions, uh, Mumbai region and Canada region. Uh, the reason for that is uh, I love Mumbai, Jonathan loves Canada. So what we are doing in first pattern is people or users in both the regions are served their read request from their respective regions. Okay, users in India are being served from Mumbai, users are Canada and being served from Canada. Because data is replicated on both the sides, read requests can be served locally. However, what we are doing is, we are writing the records only to one side. So users in India end up writing to uh, India, and the users in Canada also, their write queries go to India. The benefit of it is you have a single place uh, where all the transactions are tracked, where inventory is managed and things like that. And from this side, uh, in this example, Mumbai side, the data is continuously replicated to the other side, Canada, where it is available for read. Some of you might wonder, you know, there are different regulations in these countries and how we have selected these examples. The only reason we selected these examples is because we love those respective regions. In your case, most probably you will be setting up multi-region active active architecture between US East and US West, or EU East, EU West, uh, like within a geographical area which are covered by the same regulations. The second pattern is, and by the way, let me uh, uh, emphasize this, this pattern is very useful for transactional data, okay? Next pattern is read local, write local. So in this pattern, uh, for both the sides, read operations are happening locally and write operations as well are happening locally, okay? And the database systems that are there, they're multi-master database systems that are spread across two regions. 
So updates on this side go on this side, updates on this side come on this side. And this is a great pattern uh, for all the data that is non-transactional for you. So systems like DynamoDB global tables, they make uh, deploying such a system extremely easy for you. So uh, the first pattern, read local, write global is great for transactional data. And the second pattern, read local, write local is great uh, for non-transactional data. These are some of the design principles you should keep in mind. We don't have time to cover them, but we encourage you to take a look at this white paper. Now let us take a look at uh, the pillars or building blocks. First of all, uh, you need to have high availability for individual components, uh, because as they say, a chain is only as strong as the weakest link in the chain. So how we provide it? Uh, the way we provide it is through the architecture of a region. So as you know, AWS regions are across, uh, spread across the world, and every uh, region is in turn consists of multiple availability zones which are spread across a metropolitan region. And each AZ can be a data center uh, in its own. So each AZ can have multiple data centers and they have redundant power supplies, redundant network supplies. So this makes uh, your AZs and regions uh, highly available uh, through redundancy of resources. Now, we highly encourage you to spread your applications across multi-AZ. And unfortunately, uh, we see that while it is very easy, very few customers actually end up doing it. So we highly encourage, even within a given region, even within a given region, even when you are designing a single region architecture, you spread your resources across three AZs, at least. Okay? And data can be replicated uh, between the AZs, uh, so that data is locally available to your web and app servers, so that cross-AZ calls are minimized. On this canvas, we lay out all the AWS services. We don't have time to discuss those services uh, in detail, but uh, I would uh, suggest if you're interested, take a screenshot of this slide, and this presentation will also be available on SlideShare. Uh, this slide basically shows all the uh, storage services that AWS provides. Okay? Uh, so the services in the upper half of the diagram, they are multi-AZ by default. What it means is you don't have to take any initiative to make them multi-AZ. They spread their data as well as their compute nodes internally across the AZs. So they are uh, robust against failure of any AZs. So this is amazing, right? The services which are in the lower half, like Elasticsearch, RDS, Aurora, Neptune, DocumentDB, Elasticash, Manage Kafka, Amazon MQ, okay? These are not multi-AZ by default, but it is just a matter of a configuration, pushing a button that makes them multi-AZ, and we highly encourage you to run them in a multi-AZ fashion. We go beyond that, uh, focus on these three services, Aurora, Neptune, DocumentDB. Even if you don't mean to make them multi-AZ, they automatically spread data across six disks, which are spread across three different AZs which are independent data centers. So even without doing it, you have very high amount of data durability and high amount of support for data high availability. The next is data replication section. In data replication, the first type of data, uh, let us uh, focus on the file data, which could be videos, images, or whatever kind of uh, object data you have. So AWS S3 service is able to replicate your data from one region to another over a very strong backbone, and Jonathan will talk a little more about backbone to tell you uh, how it is so uh, good for you. Uh, S3 replication is done automatically. If you, you just have to select few options, and you can replicate at the object level, at the prefix level, at the bucket level. So there are different levels of granularity that is available for uh, specifying which data is to be replicated and which data is to be skipped. Not just that, we also have this feature called as replication time control. What that means is uh, you are able to have SLA-based uh, expectations uh, for data replication to complete. So uh, we aim to replicate your data within 15 minutes from one side to the other, and that's more than enough for most kind of object files. And if it doesn't happen within 15 minutes, for the percentage of files that don't get copied within 15 minutes, uh, there is a credit uh, given back to you. Uh, what it indicates is a uh, high amount of confidence on part of AWS in the kind of replication system that has been put underneath it. Uh, again, 
uh, this system uh, meets the expectation of an ideal replicator. It, uh, uh, you know, it reports the byte spending count. It reports replication latency. It reports operation pending count. It is basically a number of files that are yet to be copied. The next system is elastic block storage. Uh, as we know, we can take snapshots, which are incremental backups. And these snapshots can be very easily moved from one region to the other. The next one. The next one is DynamoDB Global Table. Uh, this is a great service if you want to implement read local, write local pattern, wherein writes are happening locally in each of the regions, and they are then replicated to the other region. And it happens uh, all the ways from one replica to another. And as I said, this pattern is great for NoSQL data, which is non-transactional data, basically. Uh, you have to keep in mind that this is a DynamoDB-based system, so there is eventual consistency. Uh, and in case uh, the same record is updated in both the region, the last write wins. And this pattern works for most of the use cases. Let me just show a quick animation to show you how it works. So basically, you can put item, basically write into any region. Uh, that item will be applicated in all the other, uh, replicated in all the other regions, so that you can get it or read it from any other region. Uh, likewise, you can update the same item in still uh, remaining region. And all the changes are continuously synchronized. So this is a great system if you want to implement replication for non-transactional data. And you will eventually end up doing that. Again, uh, this system meets the expectations of an ideal replicator. It reports replication latency. It reports pending replication count in the sense how many operations or changes are yet to be propagated from one side to the other. Next one, RDS. RDS provides you managed SQL storage engines like MySQL and Postgre and a few other. Uh, RDS also has the option of setting up a cross-region replica for you, which is managed by RDS service. Again, it's a matter of selecting certain options. Uh, RDS automatically creates the replica, which gets data from the primary all the time. Again, this system also meets the expectation of an ideal replicator with retries and everything. It also very neatly reports replication lag, which you need to monitor. Uh, this system uh, helps you implement which pattern? read local, write global. So everybody writes to the same primary, okay? And from there, data is replicated to all the regions to multiple read replicas so that it is available everywhere for read operations. Now, this might seem like a overkill or rather something that may not work, but the point is this system works very well because in most systems, write operations are much fewer than read operations. Reads are happening locally, only in uh, case of write, remote writes are happening, which most applications can tolerate as Wish demonstrates with their example. Okay, uh, let me uh, go to my next slide. So, so far we talked about the systems that are user-facing or online systems. What about systems that are not user-facing? What about the system that are meant for analytics or machine learning that are used by your business analysts? Okay, so the point is uh, any disruptions in a region are temporary. Okay, uh, there might be a disruption to your business that is temporary. You still can't afford it. That's why you set up a multi-region active-active architecture. But for analytics kind of applications, machine learning kind of applications, you know, in most cases, half an hour of disruption, one hour of disruption is no big deal. So that allows you to simplify the design and not have uh, analytics stack replicated in both the regions. So what we are doing is, uh, in this suggestion, we are consolidating analytics data from multiple regions into a single region that will save you uh, cost and it will give you a single view of all your business that is happening across two regions. Uh, discussing this design in detail is beyond the scope of this uh, session, but we highly encourage you to read up about Kinesis data streams and how it interacts with Lambda and how it helps you to consolidate data in a single region for analytics. With that said, I'm done with my part of presentation. Let me invite uh, Jonathan on stage.
Cool. Thank you, Girish. So Girish just talked to us about two, the first two of the foundation of pillars, right? So for that multi-region active-active, he talked about high availability, right? Certain services that were highly available already, multi-AZ already, certain services that you had to click a few checkboxes to be able to do that. We already talked about the regions, the AZs, and then we, we figured that high availability part. Then we talked about data replication. So replicating that data across region, we talked about global tables, Aurora, but all of those need to be able to communicate between each other. So that was done over the AWS backbone that Girish mentioned as well. So the other part is what about your database? What about your data? What if you're hosting your own EC2 instances and you want to replicate the data? Sure, you could just dump it inside of S3 and then that will get with cross-region replication, go over to the other region. But we need to talk about how you could connect two regions if you wanted to get them to talk between each other. So connecting two regions, the networking piece. So I have two regions, again, Canada and Mumbai. Obviously, I'm going to pick those two. Um, so the, I have two VPCs, two databases on each side, and then now they need to talk between each other. So how do I get them to talk between each other? Well, one way to do that will be to go over a software VPN appliance. So using a software VPN appliance, but don't you have that, AWS? Don't you have a service to help me in doing that? We do. It's called Virtual Private Gateway or Transit Gateway. You can also use that. Problem is, that only acts as a server. It doesn't act as the initiator of the connection, which means you can't get two virtual private gateway or two transit gateway to directly talk and VPN into each other. There's none of the two that initiates the connection, the first connection. So that doesn't work. So then you need software VPN appliances that are running on top of your EC2 instances. And in fact, you probably need yet another box over there and another box on the other side. Right? I need at least two on each side to be able to communicate. And then all of that is gonna go over the internet, right? Over the internet, there is jitter that happens. So high latency, low latency, higher latency, lower latency, depending on or service providers that don't want to talk between each other, or links that gets cut, or things like that, right? So when that happens, then you do not, do not have um, latency that is equal all the time. If, it, if latency is not equal all the time, then replication of that data well, it can take a little bit more time from time to time and a little bit less time from the other time. So that, that's not good. We want something more permanent. So what, why won't you use the AWS global infrastructure? So how can you go and use that global infrastructure? So this global infrastructure, every time you see those little white links everywhere on the slide, those are fibers, right? Fibers that we own, that we have laid across ocean all around the world and on top of land, right? There, there's one that passes in that land right there. Um, but you, this... This global infrastructure, how can you make use of it? Well, we have inter-region VPC peering. So inter-region VPC peering is going over the AWS backbone, always over the AWS backbone. The data is encrypted. As soon as it leaves the region, data will be encrypted towards, well, the other region. And then there's no single point of failure, no bandwidth bottleneck, which means that you don't have, well, on the no single point of failure, don't try to create two VPC uh, peering. Now, this is a slide that we created a little bit ago, and then Andy, in the, his keynote on Tuesday, released something else. Transit gateway, VPC peering. So then now you can peer to transit gateway across region, which is quite great, in, especially in this case where, well, not in this case, because in this case I only have two VPCs, life is good. But if I start adding more VPCs, right? I add another one, and then another one, and then another one, and I need them to get connected, so I now need to get every single one of them connected everywhere. So that's a lot of lines. I think I got all, most all of them. Um, but that's a lot of line between each other. Transit Gateway, what that allows you to do is I can have an, uh, one VPC that we will call the shared VPC, right? That, that will be your hub and spoke. So your hub will be where Transit Gateway lives and connect to the other hub in the other region. And then now all of my VPCs acts as hubs in each individual region. Why do we say go use Transit Gateway and don't establish VPC peering? You should go and use Transit Gateway right away. The reason for that is implementing Transit Gateway after the fact is way more difficult than if you implement it in the first place. Hence why we say go use transit. If you're in a green field, right, you're just starting, that's okay. Transit gateway is probably the proper way to do this. Plus VPC peering, right? It does use the VPC peering technology behind the scene. Okay, so we've talked about networking. Now our data is replicated across. 
the data is in both places, or I don't know, synchronously, well, synchronously or asynchronously, really asynchronously because we're cross-region, how do we get our users to one region versus the other? I have two regions. So where do I send my user? We need to talk about traffic routing. So how do I do traffic routing? DNS. I have a resource A, which is in one region. Resource B is in another region. Which one of the two regions will I go and use? Well, we need to pick one. Right? I'm, I don't want to flip my users between the two sides of the regions all the time, because maybe a little bit of data that takes time to be replicated towards the other side. So Route 53, our DNS service, is going to return the IP address of only one region, if that's what you wanted. So, or multiple IP addresses, depending on the service you're using. So, in this case, which one of the two regions shall I be using? Oh, you're following, that, that's good, you're still awake. So, 76 milliseconds is lower than 137 milliseconds, so yes, resource B is the one we're supposed to use, so it's gonna go towards resource B. The way that that works, this latency is from Route 53, which lives at our edge locations, and then Route 53 will measure the latency towards each one of these resources that you have established there. So that's one way to do it. Now, there is another way that's called geolocation routing. Geolocation routing based on where the user is. So you establish rules and you could say, hey, users in Canada probably should be going towards Canada Central. And then users in Mumbai or in, in India should probably be going towards Mumbai. So you select, you manually select where, based on geolocation, where shall I send my users? Versus a little bit earlier, that was more dynamic, right? Latency-based routing is dynamic. Okay, but what happens if some of your services that you are using, let's say one, by services I really mean, let's say your app layer, right? Your database layer all goes away. Now you need to flip towards another region. So we need to do a little bit of DNS failover and it will fail over, really fail over between the two regions, and RAS53 can help you do that. So RAS53 monitors each one of these resources that you have selected, once you, you decided to go and do health checks with it, and if resources in, um, in Canada Central were to go away, because I don't know, my app layer completely went away, so RAS53 will detect it, and then the next time that the user makes a DNS request towards RAS53 through the DNS resolver, the request is now going to be returned to resources that are in Mumbai towards resource B. So that's called global server load balancing. It's pretty old technology. Right? We've been doing that for a long time in the IT industry, so sure, that DNS fell over. Now, there is another solution, right? So right now we're using DNS. We're using, we're returning an IP address. Now that can be cached and all of these things, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But there is another way, um, and really let me explain what this does. So when I receive this IP address, when the user receives the IP address, the user is now communicating directly with the resources in Mumbai. They are not sending the data flow through Route 53. I know that my, my arrow is going through Route 53, but that was just to show you where the data, where the IP address is coming from. The data does not float through DNS, through the DNS server, which means that if a failure occurs, you have to wait until the user makes another DNS request to flip them to the other side. How can we make and place ourselves in the data path? Well, one way to do that is to use Global Accelerator. AWS Global Accelerator, allows you to, re, to give back the exact same IP address to your users, but pointing to different regions. So let's take this as an example. I have three regions right now. Canada Central, Mumbai, I, had, I needed one in the middle, so I picked Frankfurt. Um, so I have three IP addresses that are all different, right? Each one of my, region, my regions will have different IP addresses, and then this will happen. I now need to establish Global Accelerator. As soon as I do that, I'm going to receive two IP addresses, but those two IP addresses are now using a protocol that's called AnyCast. They will AnyCast their IP address, the, the same, exact same IP address out of every, well, out of most of the edge location of AWS. So that means that DNS only needs to return these two IP addresses for everyone. So the DNS part is very easy. www.example.com points to these two. And then from this point on, now, if I have a failure, 
So Mumbai, my services in Mumbai goes away, or in my app layer, my front end completely goes away. I don't know, something happened. So now the way that Global Accelerator works is it will detect this and then send the traffic towards the next closest region, which is a feature also of Global Accelerator, picking the closest region towards from where the user is coming from. So that's using Anycast. Anycast and TCP are not that good friends, pure TCP, because if I was going towards one edge location where Global Accelerator was, and then for whatever reason, this path towards the edge location changes, and then now for whatever reason, the user is now going through here, the other edge location, to get their data, this TCP connection is now dead. It didn't exist anymore, so we need to reestablish it. So that doesn't work so well for things that are, I don't know, an SSH connection that I keep open. But for protocol like HTTP, yes, that's okay. Connection dropping, it will reestablish it right away. It's all right, connection drop is fine. So the higher level protocol will have to handle those connection drop. So yeah, Global Accelerator will work pretty well with HTTPS, that, that will work. Um, also Global Accelerator works with UDP, so those two protocols will be, are supported with it. Now, if we compare those two solutions that we have just talked about, the DNS side and then the Global Accelerator side. The DNS side, the downside of it, is because we're caching the IP address that is returned. Whenever you get an IP address, there is something that is called a time to live. Whenever you receive a record back from DNS, there is a time to live. This time to live means, hey, how long shall you keep it in your cache? You made it one hour? Well, that means that if there is a downtime right after you started your one hour, your user is impacted for one full hour. Well, then it's better to make it five seconds. Yeah, five seconds, that means that your user is doing a lot more DNS requests towards Route 53. And then, yeah, there may be a charge depending on the record type you're using. So DNS base works, but that time to live is very important to understand because we are not in the data path. Global Accelerator is in the data path. So then that will work well for UDP for sure. But then for TCP, a little bit more difficult. You just need to figure out which protocol are you using, et cetera, in there. So those are the two. But I'm using HTTP. If I'm using HTTP, isn't there yet another service somewhere that lives at our edge location that could help me into doing and picking the region? Well, that other service that does HTTP, HTTPS, also another protocol, but we're not going to go there, is CloudFront. CloudFront lives at the edge location. CloudFront is a content delivery network. It allows you to cache data at that edge location, but that's not what we're using it for here. What CloudFront can do is it can allow you to pick a, path, pick a region, I don't know, Canada Central versus Mumbai, depending on the path that the user is using. So www.example.com slash Canada, www.example.com slash Mumbai, and then that's what I use to pick my origin. What, really? I don't wanna do that. I want to dynamically pick the region based on, let's say, the user. Where is that user coming from? So we need to add a little bit more logic, extend the capabilities of a service, add logic to CloudFront. In most cases, in most of our services that we have, any time that we say, well, just extend the capabilities of our service, if it doesn't do it, you just have to use Lambda. The connective tissue service is the term that we're supposed to use. So connective tissue service, I, I add a little bit more functionality to CloudFront. The way that that works, the user goes through CloudFront. CloudFront says, hey, Lambda, here's a request. By the way, this is the country of the user. It's a header. It's passed towards Lambda. Lambda looks at that header. Hmm, looks like the user is from Canada. So I'm going to return back to CloudFront the origin of Canada Central, which means that CloudFront will send the rest of the data for that entire connection towards Canada Central. Now, this Lambda function shall also be, well, the return path, I forgot the return path towards the client, right? So, but now the rest of this data does not pass through Lambda. The entire connection is now established towards Canada Central. The other thing that happens with Lambda at the edge is you could also add functionality to say, is Canada Central working? Before I send traffic there, maybe I need to know if it's working. Maybe not just based on the user, based on where the user is coming from, but I can add my own functionality there. I code that function. It's a function, it's your code in Node.js or Python. Okay, what if, let, let's redo that again. What if I have a user in India? User in India, 
arrives to CloudFront. CloudFront tells Lambda, hey, my user is from India. Cloud, uh, Lambda decides your code that you have coded, decides to say, hey, is, uh, is Mumbai okay? Yep, yep, it looks all right. So uh, let's return that towards CloudFront as our new origin. And then CloudFront will now communicate and send the traffic towards the Mumbai region. And then this data will flow back towards the client. That's it. So that works well with HTTP, HTTPS. Now, if you want to stick a user in one region, the user connected to that one region, I want to stick them in there. Let's say that you were doing load balancing before in between the two regions for whatever reason. Um, how do I stick them in there? Well, one way to do that is via cookies. If you return back a cookie from your back end through CloudFront, the next time that this cookie arrives towards Lambda, Lambda can inspect the cookie and say, huh, looks like that user was connected to Mumbai before. So let me not implement my load balancing algorithm and let me send that user back exactly where that user was, which was Mumbai in that case. So it's your code. Do whatever you want. That's what I will say. Now, we have talked about high availability, data replication, the networking that is used for doing the data replication. How do I redirect my users? There's one very important thing that we need to talk about, and that is management. Management is very important, and it is very, it's normally, um, forgotten about when we do multi-region active-active. In management, you need to think about security and compliance. So how do I do security and compliance? How do I ensure that no one is opening up port 22 or 3389 to the entire world? You need to set up rules. You need to audit these things. Well, we have a service. It's called Config Rules. And lucky for you, Config Rules can look at that and also use Lambda for adding a little bit more fancy rules that you're trying to add. But also, it works across region. One dashboard seeing all the rules that are not compliant. Automation and inventory. I want to know what are my resources across region. I would like to patch EC2 instances. I would like to know what's my patching level across all of those EC2 instances. AWS Systems Manager Inventory and AWS Systems Manager Automation can work across region as well. Monitoring in logs. We've talked about logs. Girish just said that analytics, the logs, maybe throw them into one region and do it from one place. CloudWatch logs helps there. But what about monitoring? I have CloudWatch metrics, the CPU utilization across all of my region and all my page view counts across all of these regions. How do I see a single pane dashboard that I can throw on a TV somewhere that I hopefully someone is looking at? I want to monitor. So that monitoring thing, is called CloudWatch Dashboards. You can create a CloudWatch Dashboard to pull metric. And as of two weeks ago, we added CloudWatch Dashboard to go cross-region. So you can create those dashboards across them. And finally, resource provisioning. How do I deploy the exact same resource across my two regions? Well, it's easy. You create a method of operation. It's a big joint document. And then you get someone to apply the document. Step one, do this. Step two, do that. Humans, are we good at following steps? We don't like following steps. I know better than not to do step number one. Come on, it's written there. I don't need to do it. I will skip right away to step number two. See, it works until it doesn't. Yeah, but it was in the document. Shouldn't you follow it? Yeah, now you need a machine to execute these steps instead. So infrastructure as code. A service of ours to do infrastructure as code is CloudFormation. CloudFormation on its own doesn't really support multi-region. Now you need to copy the template, move it to the other region, re-execute the template in the other region. We added something else a few years ago called stack sets, CloudFormation stack sets. What this allows you to do is from an account, you create a stack set. Once you've done that, it can be deployed across multiple accounts. So if I have Canada Central with two accounts in each one of those two regions, or target account A is in Mumbai and Canada Central, and B is in the two regions at the same time, from one other account, if I want to, or from the same account, I can go and deploy that stack across all of those, well, those two regions across the both of those accounts. Other things you can do with stack sets is, hey, let's automate this. Let's make sure that I will ship some data that I will um, do it only in one region at a time. I don't want to do two at a time, or if you want to do two at a time. What if it fails? Don't do the others. So you can do these kind of rollbacks and these kind of properties that you can add towards CloudFormation stack sets. So with that, what I would like to do is invite Thomas to talk about Wish to um, introduce us to how they do our infrastructure or multi-region active-active. So thank you.
All right. Uh, as Jonathan mentioned, <clears throat> I'm from Wish. We're going to talk about uh, multi-region architectures, why we would do that, what we're doing, how we'd do it. So <clears throat> first, I'll start out by introducing myself a little bit, because no one knows who I am. That's OK. Uh, so I'm the head of the core and data infrastructure teams at Wish. Uh, I've been there for coming up on three years, uh, running some of those teams there. Uh, I started out my career actually as a network engineer, so I could spend all sorts of time talking about all this Anycast stuff and peering and all that sort of stuff. But we're not going to talk about any of that because I could spend all day and I only got 20 minutes. Um, so a little bit about Wish, if you don't know who we are. So we're a mobile e-commerce platform, uh, really focused on an intent-driven and recommendations-driven um, uh, experience. So we're, we're uh, the leading mobile e-commerce platform in both the US and the EU. And you probably have heard of us or seen our ads somewhere. Um, so we have, we're fairly large, as I mentioned. We have about 500, over 500 million users, over a million different merchants, over 200 million items. That's quite a bit going on. And as a company, we've grown quite a bit, too. So this year, we just breached the 600 employee mark. We opened up our seventh office just a few weeks ago. And our most recent valuation was at 11.2 billion, which is nothing to sneeze at. So with that as some context about who we are, let's talk a little bit about our, our technology architecture at a really, really high level, because once again, only got 20 minutes. So uh, before we started any of this project, we were already in a hybrid cloud situation. So we, run on a single, we were running on a single AWS region. We had multiple different data centers with a backbone that connected them and direct connects into AWS so that we could connect things between the data center and the cloud. As an e-commerce platform, we're a very, very read-heavy application. Easily 90-plus percent of, a, of the requests to the site or, or to the databases are reads. And because of this, we actually decided to, for our database layers to go for a globally sharded and replicated database, which really follows that um, uh, uh, read, local, write, global situation, although we only had one region, so that doesn't mean anything at this point. So uh, in, as part of this, before we did multi-region, we actually had already started with this hard AZ split. So within a region, as you know, there's multiple different AZs, and, we, and in AWS, that AZ is the failure unit, and so we decided that we would architect our system, we would follow that same thing. What this means is that any given AZ is pretty simple, it's self-contained, they run independently of each other, more or less, um, and this allows us to avoid some of these cross-AZ network transfer costs. Uh, now, sometimes you can't avoid them, but you know, you, we, we can as much as we'd like. So um, someone, I'm sure, is confused as to what I mean by cross-AZ transfer costs. Let's talk a little bit about that. So presumably, you have more than one service. So the ALB sends some traffic to a service, and then you talk to many, many, many downstream services. And this problem gets uh, more interesting as we go into a more microservice architecture. So as I'm going from service A to service B, if I'm just going to start targeting any service that's in the region, I might hit another downstream that's in a different AZ. If I'm going to target that service in the other AZ, that counts as cross-AZ traffic, which there's a cost incurred for, which also messes with the reliability uh, potential, because now you're requiring both ACs to be available for the service. Uh, but this, this cost is something that doesn't sound very big, but can actually grow out of grow without you realizing it quite a bit if you have lots of AZs, and it gets especially worse as you're going into that microservice architecture, because you'll have hundreds or, or downstreams with lots and lots of fan out. <clears throat> so this is something that you want to keep in mind when you're building your services to try and avoid that cross-AZ traffic as much as possible, but sometimes it'll be necessary. We'll, we'll cover that a little bit more later. So with this, we talked a little bit about the AZs, so let's talk a little bit about our monitoring setup. So we do use uh, CloudWatch for some of our metrics, but we actually have a bunch of internal application metrics that we want to gather as well. So our, our system initially uses a combination of open source projects. Uh, you guys might have heard of some of these. So Prometheus, we were, using, we were using for scraping and storage for the metrics, as well as the alerting that gets run on those. Uh, we use another open source project called Promsky, which aggregates Prometheus together, so you can have a single uh, API endpoints to talk to multiple different Prometheus servers, and then we use Trickster as another uh, open source project to cache those dashboards. So that would look something like this. Uh, a user would send a request to the Trickster cache. <clears throat> if there's a miss, the request goes to this Promsky uh, aggregator, which then knows how to talk to the different Prometheus servers. So in this diagram, I have pairs of Prometheus servers. That way, if any Prometheus server goes down, I've still got access to the metrics. And the, the Promsky service is smart enough to know how to aggregate the metrics back together and deal with failovers and fill in gaps and metrics and all those sorts of things. So with this setup, we've already got two AZs. So uh, why would we change anything? 
<clears throat> well, one of the first things we ran into was some scalability issues. So you guys might have seen this issue before at some point where you get this insufficient instance capacity error. Um, they're not super common, but they do happen. Uh, what this comes down to is that the cloud is elastic until it isn't. And so this is really more of an issue in crunch times or if you're really large. So we've had this issue uh, commonly when we're switching instance types. So I'm gonna go allocate 500 of them in a specific region or something, and that can cause some issues. So this really is usually focused on a specific instance type and a specific AZ, and it comes really strapped for resources in that one AZ for the instances that you want. Um, you can mitigate this by using multiple different instance types, and this is a lot easier with containerization and Kubernetes and all those sorts of things. But fundamentally, uh, it's, at some point, you won't fit in a single region or a single AZ, assuming everything goes well, right? As soon as you scale, hopefully you won't fit. That's a good problem to have. So the second one we ran into uh, was availability. At our scale, an outage is really, really costly. And DR adds complexity, but doesn't always pan out. Uh, from all of our experience having done that in other places. So our plan here, the version one of this plan, is we're gonna go for an active-active setup because passive is expensive and doesn't actually help with our scale issues at all because we'd still have all the same systems running in one region and then just bring up the same number in another. So the scope here, uh, we wanted to focus on mean time to recovery, right? Since this is primarily an availability and scalability concern, we wanna focus on that mean time to recovery. The, the reason we do this is that uptime isn't free, and in a lot of times it's not even cheap, right? Achieving those, those many nines of uptime is expensive and, and arduous. So not every system requires all five or seven or eight or whatever nines you're shooting for. So what we're trying to do is focus on where we can make the most impact. So what we specifically decided to do is include user-facing systems, because those are the ones that are the most important to the business, and we're excluding some other services. A good example of that is some of our data analytics pipelines, because they can handle a 30-minute or an hour interruption, and it's not that big of a deal, whereas if someone can't uh, scroll through and select and purchase an item, that's a very big deal. So we wanted to include these user-facing systems and exclude some things like data analytics. So now that we've got some scope to find, let's, let's, make it, let's make it more complicated. So the next thing we decided to do, like every good technology company, is we came up with a big list of things and we said these are deprecated and we're never building them again. They're gone in the new region. Um, so uh, we'll come back to these in a little bit. But we had this big list of things here that we are already working on killing off and we just said we'll just not build them in the new region. We'll use this opportunity to clean up this tech debt. Great, great plan. No problems with that, sure. Um, then we decided while we're doing that, we'll also pick up some new systems. So for these systems, we were already running them this was mostly an taking this opportunity to scale up and move the last of the services over to these. And so basically taking this opportunity to both deprecate old technology and uh, bring up new ones. Uh, and w as part of this, we said, when we're gonna go make changes to, this, to, to the platform, we're gonna support, uh, it's gonna require some changes to, to, to do multi-region. So what we decided to do is that changes should be applied in the old region before they're applied in the new region. Now the reason that we want to do this is this minimizes the change when we bring up the new site. So for example, this project unfortunately takes a long time. So if I was gonna start making the code changes only in the old site and then only try, or sorry, make the, old, the changes in the new site and then try and bring it up eight months later, there's quite a bit of drift in there. So this way we can avoid that drift between these two environments while we're doing the planning and execution of this project which can take a long time. And as, as speaking of a long time, uh, the deadline was the last one that we tried to set here. We wanted to have everything done by the end of October because that way we can have some nice little bit of breathing room before the November holiday shopping season, which is really big for anyone in the e-com space. So, of course, we ran into some hurdles, so let's talk a little bit about those. So the first one that we ran into was around internal networks. So some context and background here, as I mentioned before, we have very little cross-AZ traffic, but there's still some, which means that we need to support not, not only cross-AZ traffic, but cross-region traffic as well. A good example of this is your notifications counter, right? We have, you know, if you, if you get a new item purchased or a new uh, item comes up on your wish list that's, that's on sale, those sorts of things, we'll send you notifications, but those exist somewhere and they might be across the region. So when your uh, API call hits our stack, you might actually have to call across region. And we're okay with that, but you, we need to be able to handle that failing at some point. So we basically sifted through the different calls that we're making across region, across AZ, to try and figure out which ones are necessary, which ones aren't, and make sure we can do graceful degradation with those. So to actually connect the regions, we ended up using uh, inter-region VPC peering to connect our AWS regions together. And as I mentioned before, we already had our own backbone connecting all the different colos together, and so the colo networks were already connected together. Great. Problem solved. So the second hurdle we ran into was around data consistency. 
So our, as I mentioned before, our main application DB is this globally sharded database. What this means is that for any given shard, there's a single primary, and there's auto failover through, uh, through an election that happens. And as I mentioned before, we are doing this as a read local write global setup, because this way we can avoid some of the uh, collision problems during replication of having dual writers. Uh, in our case, since we're a read heavy application, we're okay with this because what this means is that worst case, a write or, or a consistent read, meaning that it's gonna read off of a primary, needs to take about a 70 millisecond latency hit, which in our case is less than 10% of traffic and the, and the, the performance hit on that's pretty low. Uh, the other thing is, as I mentioned, we're primarily reads, but also most of our reads don't need to be immediately consistent. We can handle a little bit of lag on those reads. And so because of that, we can re push those reads off to secondaries, which allows us to do the vast majority of reads locally in the same region, which means that you don't take the performance hit of having multi-region uh, and, and you still can scale. So. We have the same data consistency problem in S3. We have images, CSS, JavaScript, all that sort of stuff that's all CDN'd up and whatnot. And so for this, it was very simple. We already stored all of our images in S3. We set up the unidirectional uh, cross-region replication, and AWS takes care of that for us, which is great. So the third hurdle we ran into was traffic routing. So I'll take this as two parts. The first part was external traffic routing. Right? As mentioned before, we could decide to either have two different domain names or something, but we don't want that because people want to go to wish.com. They don't want to go to wish.west.com or something like that. That's crazy. Um, so what we ended up using was Route 53 geo-based balancing so we could pin users from specific regions to specific, uh, from specific geos to specific regions. I can't use a region twice. Um, we also, for this traffic routing, have to deal with internal uh, traffic as well. So we had already done a project previously of moving all services to internal service discovery as opposed to using load balancers and st static IPs and all those sorts of things. Um, but we actually found that some services still had static IPs hard-coded all over creation. Uh, so this was another opportunity to come and clean up some more technical debt. And I'll take this opportunity to take a quick aside here on some system behavior. So systems tend to do what they can do, not what they should do. So in this example, right, we already had a rule that says don't hard code IPs in code, but it works, so somebody did at some point. Um, similarly, once we're done with this project, we're gonna make a rule that says you need to be able to handle 100% increase in traffic due to a region failover. But if the regions aren't failing over all the time, then maybe it won't. So what, the, what this kind of boils down to is if you don't want X to be done, you either need to not allow X or regularly audit that X <laughs> is the case. So in this case, as our, we've been moving to Kubernetes for a lot of our services, if you hard code an IP, you're not gonna get the, the IP the next time the pod starts up. So it fundamentally doesn't work, and so the system tends towards not using static IPs. Similarly, when we finish this region build out, we regularly schedule failovers to force that discipline that we can actually do a failover and moving traffic between the two different regions. So back to that, let's, let's talk about this last hurdle. The last hurdle here was around the monitoring. Um, as I mentioned before, we use our Prometheus stack. We use CloudWatch metrics. Uh, the reason we have this split is that internal, we have a lot of internal metrics and we want a lot higher granularity than we can get. So we have 15 second granularity for a lot of our internal metrics. Uh, and when we tried actually initially pulling a lot of the CloudWatch metrics into our metric system, we ran into a lot of API rate limits and whatnot because we have a lot of systems and that's a lot of API calls and it gets really complicated. So what we ended up doing, excuse me, was relying on CloudWatch to use CloudWatch alerting to report on Amazon systems, such as autoscale groups, um, uh, scheduled maintenances, all those sorts of things, and using our internal metrics, our business metrics and system metrics to do our, uh, the rest of our alerting. The other thing here that I'll talk about here is uh, not all alerts require access to all of the data. So you have some alerts that do. So a good example of that would be something like my GMV rate or my total requests per second across the entire stack. Those sorts of things I wanna know how they're trending globally, but a lot of things like, let's say, the CPU usage on a specific system or the memory usage on a specific system doesn't need access to every region and every availability zones metrics. They really only need access to the specific one. And some might only need regional level access. So what we ended up doing was taking a tiered approach to alerting, so you can have alerts that run on the local, or on a regional level, or on a global level, so that you only have to access the data that you need. So that would look something like this. You'd talk to a global Promsky, which can aggregate the regionals together, which can aggregate all the local pairs of Prometheuses together. So, and of course, we did this. Everything was wonderful, no problems. Unfortunately not. 
Uh, like every good project that takes a long time, lots of stuff goes wrong. So let's talk about a little of the adjustments we made here. So the first one, which I'm sure you all saw coming, was that we had to lack some of these requirements around deprecations. So we initially had these high and lofty goals of deprecating everything that was old. Uh, we were able to actually get most of them done, but there were a few that we ended up having to make exceptions for. And this is where I'll take the time to talk a little bit about when you're doing these large projects, there's some finesse that's involved with some of these deprecations and new services that you're bringing up. Because when, when, when someone, some team comes to you and it's like, okay, we can't, we, we, we don't want to do this deprecation. The question is, why can't we? Is it too complicated? Do we not have enough time? Is it not compatible? Do we need to build something else? And so in this case, we had to have, the, have to take the time to talk with the various teams involved to figure out which ones we were okay with letting slip and which ones we just put more resources on to make happen. So the last piece here is some of these changes that we ended up making, we actually canaried in the new region first, which I do realize is exactly the opposite of what we said previously. But due to some of these deprecations, we actually ended up making some significant changes to some application infrastructure, and we figured it was actually safer to make the change in the new region than the old region. The key here is that we did it, we, we made them the same before we started ramping traffic in the new region. So once we finish this, all these adjustments are done, projects done, our architecture looks a little, little something like this. There's a user on a device. They talk to Route 53. Route 53 sends them to some ALB somewhere. Uh, that ALB picks some instance to send. I'll ignore all the fact that all this fan out and stuff between these services, except for occasionally, you might talk across regions or across AZs. And I put this as a dotted line here because this would be something that you would want to gracefully degrade, right? If this doesn't work, I don't want the whole page to blow up. And then if I needed to do some sort of write or consistent read, that would need to go to the primary, which in this case is in the other region. But for the vast majority of traffic, I'm actually going to do a read that doesn't need to be consistent, that doesn't need to be that consistent, so it'll be local. And then similarly, if we flip this all around on the other side, client hits Route 53, hits an LB, hits an application server, maybe goes across the regions. And in this case, all of its writes are local because for this particular shard, the primary is in this region, and the secondary is also in the region. So this means that no matter which region the application's in, we always have local reads available, and the writes may be global. So the key takeaways here are one, we want to understand, you need to understand your current architecture and why it's so, and that's both on a business side as well as a technology side. There's, uh, especially as companies grow, there's a lot of things that are in place that seem a little crazy, but there might be a good reason for them. Uh, second, you want to have a, a reliable mechanism to measure everything that you're doing. There, this is a large change, and there's just no way about it. If you're going to go completely re-architect re your application, there's a lot of risk involved here. Third, you, you want to take this opportunity to clean up tech debt where practical. Right? We don't want to continually drag along tech debt with us forever and ever, so we want to find some where we can, but, but remember to keep in mind the finesse there. And the last one to talk about here is this timeline and scope. You want to set these this timeline. You want to set your scope, but remember that things change, so you need to be ready to adapt as, as different things come up. So with that, I'll invite my co-presenters back up to finish up. Uh, so yeah, that was a really fast session. So these are the takeaways from today's session we would like you to leave with. For reliability and high availability, first, use multi-AZ architecture properly. Make your application highly available within a single region first, okay? Multi-region active-active architectures, they help you limit the blast radius in case of adverse events. And if you can't afford adverse events, that is a motivation to go for multi-region active-active architecture. The next one is higher reliability is achieved compared to disaster recovery because as we said, disaster recovery environments may fall out of sync. Here we are using both the environments or even if there are three or four, whatever number of environments, all the time. So you know that they are in sync all the time. Uh, it, however, adds a little more complexity on the architecture. The next set. You need to minimize blocking dependencies from one region to the other. You need to minimize synchronous replication because as we uh, saw, it is highly network and target dependent. And if at all you have any blocking calls, and if they don't go through, your application needs to degrade gracefully. Users should not have like a very, uh, you know, bad experience, ugly errors, that kind of a thing. The next point is, there are so many different replication technologies available uh, from AWS in form of DynamoDB global tables, RDS, cross-region read replicas, S3 region uh, replication. 
please take advantage of them uh, whenever uh, you are managing your data sets using these technologies or rather these services like DynamoDB, RDS, and S3. Last but not least, analytics stacks, uh, they need not be replicated in both the regions or whatever many regions you have. They can be kept only in one region and you can consolidate data from all across your regions into a single region that really simplifies your architecture. So those are takeaways from my side. Cool. Um, so on my end, so on the networking side, remember the AWS backbone is there, right? Use transit gateway with VPC peering, or for if you only have two VPCs, then sure, a single VPC peering, inter-region VPC peering. Think about how you're gonna do your traffic routing, right? which protocol you're using, and then it doesn't have to be one to fit them all, right? You can pick one per application. And then finally, plan to manage that environment. So if you want to use third-party tools, that's totally fine for doing infrastructure as code. We have CloudFormation stack sets that works across regions, but just plan to manage that environment. Think about security. Think about your logs. Think about your monitoring. All of those are of importance there. So there are really good breakouts, and I know most of them are now over. So I'm here. I'm just showing you what the codes are so that in 48 hours, when they show up on YouTube, you can go and view them. So if today you really wanted to go deep into Global Accelerator, I'm sorry, there is a net 202 that will go deeper just on Global Accelerator. So um, classes, AWS training and certification has a class that's called Architecting on AWS that matches, that goes towards and talks a lot about this multi-region uh, pattern. And the certification, so the uh, solution architect professional will talk a lot more about multi-region active-active versus the associate is more around the single region kind of deployment. With that, on behalf of Girish, myself, and Thomas, we would like to thank you for coming with us today. Thank you.